Tennis is a sport much beloved around the world and has millions of people betting on it. Our podcast gives an in-depth look into the markets across the game's biggest events with adept insight from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Okay, Pinnacle listeners, it is now time for the final Grand Slam, the US Open. And, well, we've done a few of these before now, haven't we? So let's get into it. We've got Mats Villander with us, Grand Slam winner and tennis pundit and expert. And also Dan Weston as well, our stats man who looks at all the data and blows mine and Mats's minds with everything that he knows. So welcome back along, gents. Um, Mats... I want to get going. I just want to have a look back at 1988, if you don't mind. Um, it's where you became world number one for the first time. How do you look back on that tournament? I'm guessing fairly fondly. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, mainly fairly fondly, but it's uh, with mixed emotions. Of course, that was the last uh, Grand Slam tournament that I won uh, in singles or doubles. Of course, that was the big final against Ivan Lendl. We played for f- nearly five hours and we were actually playing for the world number one ranking. Uh, and that was the only time and the first time that that happened to me as well. So there was a lot on the line. US Open had never been won by a Swedish player before. Bjorn Borg had been, I think, in three or four finals. And it looked like uh, New York City just wasn't kind to uh, the mellow attitude of Swedish tennis players. Uh, we were struggling. I was struggling early on. And then I got to, to love it because I moved to Manhattan and then later I moved uh, a little bit outside of, of the city in, into Connecticut. I got married um, and I uh, was able to stay at home. This is the big one. I was able to stay at home on the days off. I had the exact same court in my backyard. So I would invite up another player or hit with my coach. And that just made such a huge difference because Manhattan, as you know, but the U.S. Open is very similar to Manhattan. Very noisy, very busy, very difficult to, to actually switch off. So uh, I think it took so much out of me, James, that that was it. I just couldn't get my motivation back up and, uh, and I'm happy I won it. But uh, so it, it's, it's mixed uh, emotions. But going back is just so fun. You love it. Absolutely love it. Um, did you enjoy playing at Flushing Meadows? What's the atmosphere like compared to the Grand Slams for a player's perspective? If you kind of try and compare it to Roland Garros and Wimbledon, if you can, from a player's point of view, what was it like? What are the Yanks like? Yes, yeah, so the most uh, important and uh, uh, critical comment I've ever heard was from the great South African player, Kevin Curran. Kevin Curran uh, is basically famous for having made the finals at Wimbledon in 1985, lost to Boris Becker, Becker's first major. And Kevin Curran said that same year, he thinks they should drop an A-bomb on Flushing <laughs> Meadows. And, and the reason why which is obviously uh, uh, not a cool thing to say, but he was joking, of course. The LaGuardia Airport is right next door to Flushing Meadows uh, or the USTA Tennis National Center, as, as they've named it now, or Billie Jean King Tennis Center as well. The planes were literally taking off right over the Louis Armstrong Senate Court. Louis Armstrong is now the court number one, or the second biggest, and now Arthur Rash is the biggest. And it was true. I mean, they were taken off <laughs> your head and you could not hear one thing. And there were some players like an Ivan Lendl who refused to play if he had the choice when he was serving. And he would try and stop you. Hold on, Matt's the plane. I'm like, 
We're going to wait for a minute. And then, of course, there were some players that used this to their advantage. And, sir, because when you can't hear the ball hit the racket, it's really hard. So I'm telling you, it was absolutely the worst major that there was. You could smell the hot dogs and the hamburgers. Uh, and it was just a concrete city of a, a tennis stadium, the complete opposite of Wimbledon. And I, I, that was the case for my whole career. But I, as I said, I, I met my wife in New York City. I, I later lived in 1986, 87 in New York City. I remember going bowling the night before my 1987 final against Ivan Lendl because it was rain delayed. And I was going bowling on that Sunday night. And my friends were like, well, come on, Matt. What's that? Go bowling and have a beer or two and then go bowl. No, not the beer. But you know what I mean? Yeah, I was a yeah. New York City man. It was just a shocking situation. And they really, really improved uh, the situation. There are no airplanes taking off anymore over. They do land over the center court of Arthur Ashe, but they don't take off anymore. So it's a much, much uh, friendlier environment. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, from your perspective, can you take anything from the grass court tournament results um, going into this, I'm sure this will form, you know, a, a, the core basis, basically, of what we're going to be talking about when we're trying to predict uh, winners and analyse who's doing well and who's on form and all that kind of stuff. What, what can you take from Grand Slam um, sort of grass court tournament results and also just other grass court tournament results into hard court season in terms of the performances? Or is it just basically you wipe your, your slate clean and you start again? Well, first of all, there's certainly not the smell of uh, hot dogs and burgers at Wimbledon. It's more of a strawberries and cream. <laughs> and cream I think is there. Um, but but uh, seriously, uh, I think it's it's quite different. So grass is obviously a quicker uh, surface than hard courts, and and so therefore it's difficult to really say that the the, the events are similar in terms of the dynamics and who they might suit. But also, I think when we look at the warm up events, I think we can can read maybe slightly less into the performances of the, in the warm-up events compared to some of the other tournaments. So uh, Cincinnati, Toronto, both of them have, uh, have a dynamic where numbers-wise at least, they, they are slightly serve-orientated tournaments. So they have a higher service points, one percentage than the average hardcore. Now that's not quite the same as at Flushing Meadows. So, so we have to factor those areas into account for sure. Uh, and so therefore, I mean, I, I think it's obviously a real positive for any player to do well in warm-up tournaments, but I wouldn't necessarily read an abundance into, into that going into this tournament. So this is the Advantage Bessers podcast uh, from Pinnacle, and we try to cover all the Grand Slams if we can. And I'll tell you what, I can't remember what we did last time, but we'll, we'll go the men's draw this time, uh, first up. Uh, Federer, Nadal, Vavrinka and team all ruled out of the tournament. And of course, team is the defending champion. Uh, Zverev said that Novak Djokovic is the clear favourite for the title. That's despite Zverev winning the Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati Masters last week. So, Djokovic on the verge of making history. Is there an argument against the stats um, that he is set to become the greatest ever men's player? Uh, Dan, we'll start with you and then I want the kind of the semantics from you, Matt, in a minute. Um, I think that he has an argument to already be the greatest player of all time. And I think by the time he's finished, he certainly will be. I think that his his eventual career Grand Slam amount of titles will be virtually insurmountable for many decades to come, if if, if ever insurmountable. Matt, longevity and style or number of titles or any other kind of thing that we can't really measure, what? are the most crucial components to the greatest of all time debate, the GOATS debate? 
Well, the most crucial, I think, is pretty clear uh, that it's Grand Slam victories and singles. Uh, and of course, the three, uh, the big three, Roger, uh, Federer, Rafa Nadal and Novak are all on 20. So Novak can win his 21st and that would on paper put him past uh, the other two. Of course, by winning his 21st here at the US Open, he would also win the calendar Grand Slam, which hasn't been done since 1969 uh, when it was done by Rod Laver. Of course, in those days, uh, three of the majors were played on grass. It was only the French Open that was played on a different surface, a clay court, of course. Now, Rod Laver won it in 1960 too as well which is why he's always in the in the mix of talking about the greatest player of all time he was not allowed to play uh, 1963 through 1967 he won another three in 1968 and then of course the four again like I said so Rod Laver really uh, would have been up there with sort of 20-25 grand slams but we can't go there so uh, I think the head-to-head as well is important Novak Djokovic has a positive head-to-head against both Rafa and Roger um, I think the only thing that, uh, well, of course, he hasn't won the Olympics. Uh, and that, that's why that was such a big deal for Novak Djokovic. He hasn't won the Olympics, hasn't even won a medal. Uh, so that's huge. But I think that uh, I have a feeling that once we start talking about Novak, should he win here, we're going we're gonna to give him the credit. Everybody's going to give him the credit. I'm going to be the first one to give him the credit because he's taken it to the next level in terms of physicality, flexibility, beating the two greatest players of all time. I mean, Rafa and Roger were the greatest players of all time for quite a few years. There's an interesting stat. Novak Djokovic had won one Grand Slam singles titles once Federer was at 16. Now, that's an amazing, amazing stat. We never, ever thought that. But going back to it, there's something so likable about the way Roger Federer plays his tennis, the way he talks, the way he interacts with, with, the, with the crowd, with the uh, interviewer on the court. He's actually a funny guy, Roger Federer. Novak Djokovic, we know he's a funny guy. The setbacks Novak has is clearly what happened at the US Open the last time around when he hit that ball umpire, uh, uh, line umpire in the throat with a tennis ball. The, another setback is the Olympics. The Olympics this year where he fought like crazy to win a, to get to the finals, didn't do it, tried to win a bronze medal, didn't do it, and then for some strange reason pulls out of the mixed. I mean, it was just one mixed tennis match with a, 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 a Serbian woman to win a medal for the country, and it didn't even show up. And I think that's going to sit uh, not too good with fans around the world, and especially when you're talking about fans of Roger and Rafa. So it's a very sensitive issue to me in a way, but I'm very happy saying in terms of level, Novak Djokovic will be the greatest player of all time. He will. Well, look, he is already or probably or whatever your viewpoint is, the greatest player of all time. The fact of the matter is, on the odds on Pinnacle, he is the absolute standout favourite. Um, so, who is going to stop him claiming that elusive 21st major title? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty, Dan, with looking at some of the odds and the stats around it. So, Djokovic, just for our betters, um, 1.763 on Pinnacle to win the tournament, which is absolutely ridiculous. You get shorter odds on a very top-level Premier League team to win a match which is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but then you've got Daniel Medvedev at uh, 4.930, Alexander Zverev at 6.6, who beat Djokovic at the Olympics. You've got to remember that. Tsitsipas is at 10s. Um, and there's a couple of outsiders I'm going to throw at you shortly. But Dan, what's, what's he kind of pointing towards? I have a couple of names. And when they inevitably come up in your analysis, I'll jump in. I think I'm being clever here by predicting who you're going to say. But anyway, I'll let you crack on. 
Yeah, so so I think the, when we go back to the uh, the goat debate again, we can also say that in, certainly in my time of analysing tennis, which spans not far off a decade now, uh, I think it's also worth pointing out that he was odds-on favourite for far more Grand Slam titles, particularly away from clay, than any of the other two. So the betting market clearly views Djokovic certainly as the goat over the last 10 years. I don't think there's any debate about that whatsoever. Um, with regards to this tournament, well, um, obviously he's going for the fourth, fourth slam of the, of the year, as Matt said earlier. Um, he's won over 90% of matches overall this year, um, and he has an all-surface combined service and return points, one percentage of just over 112%. Now, that anything over 110 is top draw elite level. So he, he, even though maybe some people are saying, well, yeah, he's won his slams, but he, he comes, comes into the tournament with two, two losses in the Olympics as well. His numbers over the year have still been superb. And I think that, that we, we shouldn't forget that. And that, that underlying data is a big part of why he's odds on for this tournament, a huge favorite to, to, to win the tournament. And it's also worth noting that the top four in the market have around a 90% implied chance by, from the market of, of winning the tournament. So we're saying that in a 128-player field, four players have got 90% chance between them and the other 124 players have got 10% chance between them. Wow. Wow. Like, absolutely wow. That's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> um, okay. Matteo Berrettini, Andre Rublev. Whose games suit the hardcore the best in the men's draw? And I'm just trying to have a little look through and they're kind of outsiders for me. Uh, big odds as well. So Matteo Berrettini's at 19 and a half. Rublev's at 26. And I'm not saying genuine contenders. You guys might disagree with me there. But could they potentially go deep into the tournament? I'm more thinking from people who are going, right, I want to pick in an outsider, someone who's, you know, not particularly a ho- talked about horse, let's say. So, so Matt, who, who, you, who are you going for? Uh, any outsiders? Any outsiders, first of all? Yeah, I think the two you mentioned there, actually, Andre Rublev, because he's he's very consistent. Um, I don't think Andre, Andre Rublev is likely to necessarily cause an upset, like beating Novak Djokovic or beating uh, a uh, Sasha Zverev, let's say, in the finals. But, but Andre Rublev is one that can go the whole distance if he gets a little bit lucky in the draw. He doesn't get tired. He's physically an absolute monster. Uh, he's very consistent. I think the five sets is going to suit him because he's got great attitude. Uh, so he can win the tournament if he if the draw kind of falls uh, into, into a perfect place for him and he doesn't play the wrong guy at the wrong time because we have to remember the conditions at the U.S. Open, they can be, I now I'm going to, to New York here shortly. Uh, it's going to be 100 degrees, 100 degrees when I get there for the first day of, pra- of kind of practice Friday. Uh, and then it cools down. So if it's cool in the, in the nighttime, 70 degrees, the balls are very heavy. It plays very slow. Under the lights is different. And then you can have it. So, so it depends on the draw. But Andre Rublev, I think, is a dark horse in terms of winning the tournament. Matteo Berrettini is one that can beat anyone at any time because the way he plays, he's so, uh, so good when he's good and he's very inconsistent, unfortunately. A lot has to do with a pretty weak two-handed backhand. But he found a way at Wimbledon to play around that hitting some slice backhands coming to the net a little bit more. So, so he can easily cost the upset. He can even beat Novak Djokovic to me. Uh, together with those guys, I would throw in 
Uh, somebody like Dennis Shapovalov, who had semis at Wimbledon, he's very dangerous. Uh, he can beat anyone, might not have the consistency to go through. Felix Auger Aliasim, uh, to me, is the other way around. He's more like the Rublev. He has the attitude, he's got the physicality, and he could actually win it. But what worries me about Novak, and I know we're not, but why I think, and I know that I'm most probably wrong here because, Dan, you got the stats and the numbers. I would, for the first time in a long time, say that Novak Djokovic is less of a favorite to win than the field. Uh, and that I know uh, it has happened when he's more more of a favorite than the rest of the field. The other 127 players. To me, these guys are so good, all of them. And all the players we have mentioned, I mean, he could literally play five of them in a row, starting in the third round and then going all the way through to the finals. And if Felix Auger-Aliassime takes a chunk out of Novak's confidence and his stamina, and then you have a Matteo Berrettini, and then you got a Zver, and a Tsitsipas, and a Rublev, I mean, hold it. That's like, the guys are really good today. And hard courts, I think, overall is their best surface. I'm sure Dan's going to I, I, geez, I hope you're agreeing with me right here, Dan. I think I'm right. But hardcore is, I think, the most dangerous surface for Novak today to play against these guys because they hit the ball so hard. They hit the ball so clean and they serve absolutely huge. There are very, very few grass court specialists and there are very, very few clay court specialists today. Even though a lot of men have grown up on clay, they're not clay court specialists. They are hard court specialists. Uh, and uh, Novak is the greatest of all time. But I think that's my worry for Novak is the field. So to pick a winner, it's, geez, it's like nearly impossible outside of Novak Djokovic to me. And Dan, you know, from your perspective, trying to pick a an outsider or somebody who could challenge looking at the things. I mean, it's, it's, it is very difficult. And what you've also got to factor in, guys, is that the Bucky's odds, you know, we're, we're saying that, I mean, I've seen how short those odds are for Djokovic, but that's because of his prowess. That's because of what he's done. That's because you can't write him off. They are immeasurable things. Um, and Dan, actually, he, he looks poor value, Djokovic, doesn't he, when you look at the rest. I suppose what I'm trying to say is, is that there are lots of potential players. He's just trying to work out who that player is. Yeah, and I think that, as Matt says, that sort of third, fourth, fifth, quarterfinal, sorry, I should say, semi-final draw is that that you have to take that into account. You know, he could get lucky, he could get unlucky. Someone like Berrettini, for example, with who's arguably one of the best servers on tour, he's actually won 71% of service points on all, across all services this year. That was incredibly strong. And with also this unique dynamic in the, the US Open over a tie-break in the fifth set as well. So, you know... An Isner or someone like that, or a Kyrgios or an Apelka, could cause Djokovic a little bit of trouble with that sort of more high variance dynamic that we see in New York compared to the other Grand Slams as well. So, so those are other sort of sort of tournament specific factors that we have to factor in a little bit. So, I mean, I can't wait to see the draw. I'm looking forward to that and to see see maybe who the hurdles might be for Djokovic. I'm not sure I'd want to back against him even so, but but I can understand, you know, I can understand the market and I can understand why, you know, you think, oh, wow, he's, he's favourite over the field as, at odds on, you know, and that's tricky. There are very good players in the field. And I think a lot will depend on the draw. It's also worth mentioning the fact that, that from the seedings, uh, he'll, he should be split between him and Daniel Medvedev in terms of top and the bottom half of the draw. 
Zverev and Tsitsipas will probably be preferring to be in Medvedev's bracket as opposed to, to Djokovic's bracket. So whoever out of those two is in Djokovic's bracket, will you will see their price probably increase because it's going it to decrease their chances of winning the tournament. So, so let, yeah, let's see what happens with the draw. And, and yeah, I, personally, I'd like to see Djokovic get a test in round one or round two from maybe a player who's not seeded but has high upside uh, and, and see how he progresses in, in, in that, that type of test. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot, Dan. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm just trying to have a look at the women's draw. Okay. Now, here's an interesting little stat for you that sort of bridges between the men's and the women's draw. Not since 1997 have all three of Serena Williams, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal all been missing from the same Grand Slam at the tournament. Since 1997. I mean, I... I can't quite get my head around that. Um, it's a shame. Of course it is. Um, but the show goes on. And the show always goes on in the women's draw because it's always so open. So here are the odds. And I want both of you again just to kind of talk me through these runners and riders. So Ash Bart is your favourite with Pinnacle at 4.9. Naomi Osaka just after that at six and a half. Uh, Bianca Andrescu. Uh, 13.6 and Simona Halep is at 18.67 Ash Barty you were there looking to claim a third career major of course she's only ever made the fourth round at the US Open which you know compared to semi-finals and finals at other majors is disappointing is there a particular reason for that Dan? I'm saying Sam Barty being favourite uh, well, yeah Barty being favourite considering that she's not got yeah. Past the fourth round at US Open. And also, why hasn't she got past the fourth round at US Open? You know, finals, winners, semi-finals at the other tournaments. So yeah. so what's different about this one? So, okay, so you've already mentioned the fact that, that in the women's tour, there's quite a lot of uh, similar level players. It's such an open open tournament, all these big tournaments in, women, in women's competition. And um, despite that, I think it's worth mentioning that Barty has won Two out of her last three tournaments. If we it, 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 uh, not the Olympics, she lost to Sara Soribas Tormai at the Olympics, but she did win Wimbledon. And the only sets she dropped to Wimbledon were via tiebreaks. And she also won in Cincinnati without dropping a set. Now, on a tour where players are pretty evenly matched, such exhibitions of dominance are pretty few and far between. And I think that she's pretty justified actually in being favourite. I wouldn't read too much into venue success or failure because particularly in, in WTA tour, because there's only a few tournaments. And as we say, many players can beat each other on a given day. So uh, I'm, I would more be more worried about if she struggled to win grand slams on a regular basis rather than an individual tournament. You know, there are some women's players who, who yeah, they, they will win premier mandatory events or, or what they call masters now but they can't ever get to the final win a Grand Slam. I don't, I don't see her in that bracket. So I, th- I actually think she's a pretty justified favourite. Mm. Interesting. And Matt, here's one for you. And so Naomi Osaka, we obviously know, we, we, we don't need to go into all, all the off-court stuff, but will her lack of on-court time in the last six months affect the performance here? I mean, we don't know, obviously, what she's going to be like mentally, how she's going to feel when she does step back out on that court in a Grand Slam. But surely it's not the best preparation just as a tennis player. I'm not talking about anything else. If you have that amount of time off, whether it's for injury or whatever other reason, it's going to have a bit of an effect on your game, isn't it? There's going to be an element of rustiness. 
Oh, it's gonna. It, it has to have an effect. I mean, if the, if it doesn't affect her, she's she's superhuman. Uh, but uh, with uh, all the, the the problems that she's talked about, we know she's not superhuman. I think that for her, um, I think she's gonna play her best tennis uh, again. I think she loves being out on a hard court. She is, on the other hand, one of those players that if you we were talking about the French at Wimbledon, I would say that no, 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 no. She's not one of the favorites because she can't actually win too many matches on those two surfaces. And it's kind of similar to what, Dan, what you said about Ash Barty. Uh, I mean, obviously winning in Cincinnati is a huge confidence boost, but but Ash Barty, she's so good at, uh, at, uh, at, at playing tactically correct consistently and that's harder to do on a hard court so Ash Barty I think this is her weakest surface whether it's New York or not Naomi Osaka the opposite uh, I think you have to be a bit of an extrovert to, to enjoy uh, the US Open and enjoy New York City uh, and uh, Naomi Osaka having won there twice is, is definitely that but and I know you said we shouldn't talk about it James but when she starts winning matches and she's going to go through oh, and now that she's going to go to the press conference and they're going to keep her there for as long as they can, this press. And you know what the media, they're going to start pressing her. They want her to explode. They want her to, to take a, a bit of a tear and walk out and turn around and come back in because that's going to make every talk show in America. I was going to say David Letterman, but that's when that, that was in the 80s. But it's going to make every little talk show uh, in America on the national network. It's going to make it's going to make CNN. It's going to make Fox News. Everyone's going to cover it. So there's going to be pressure there. Then she has to play another match, and it's just going to keep going, and it's going to escalate in a way where is she in a situation where she loses the first set? She has had a set point, which happens all the time. Maybe seven five, maybe seven six, and then she gets down one zero break in the second set. Now does she at that particular moment have the intensity level and the will? to stand up and fight basically in her, in her eyes at the time, the world, because she's going to start feeling that the world is against her. Everybody wants a piece out of me. Everybody wants to know how I'm feeling. How am I going to explain that has to hit home at some point, unless she keeps rolling through the draw and winning in straight sets the whole time, which she is capable of doing. But I think this is, I mean, it's an unbelievable test for Naomi Osaka. And having said all that, I have to say that she's come around to me. She's really come around and she's making sense of what it is that she was trying to say in the first place. It's just the order of events was in the wrong order. She should have come out the way she's done now first and then said, and because of all my, my, uh, my mental health issues, I have a problem with press conference and whatnot. But of course, <laughs> the controversy of being on the, on the cover of uh, Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, I mean, that, that's not, that's, it's, it's tough for her. She's a massive star for, in many ways, the wrong reason right now, but she has won four majors, and I think she's the favorite still to win the U.S. Open this year. Nice. Okay. Nailing the colors to the master. That's what we want. That's what we want. Uh, Dan, I want some good picks, and also I've got a couple of outside picks as well myself. Uh, Petra Kvitova at 21.2 on Pinnacle, and also uh, Sabalenka. 15.13 on Pinnacle. So, Dan, give, give me some thoughts on the women's side of the draw. I mean, who, who's on form? Who's not? You know, I, I want to know. Okay. So, so those two players, Sabalenka and Kavita, I think that they're, they're certainly among those players who can definitely beat each other. They're players who can beat anybody on their given day. Uh, the question is how many players have 
a similar level or slightly lower level are they going to have to beat to get to the latter stages? So the draw is going to be pretty critical for them. I think both of them, based on um, the kind of current level over the last couple of months, will probably they'll want to get a couple of easy games in the first few rounds to try and ease themselves into the tournament. Now, as far as an outsider goes, I, I am pretty on board with Barbara Krejcikova. Nice. Who surprisingly won the French Open uh, in, in sort of May, end of May, start of June. And, you know, she was an unseeded player in that tournament. And, she and also she- an unmentioned player going into this, really. You know, I've not even yeah. mentioned her on the odds. That's ridiculous for a yeah, grand definitely. slam. But she's shown that it's no fluke, right? Mm. So, she, yeah, she, I think that there was an argument at that time to say that she was something of a clay court specialist uh, based on her numbers prior to the tournament, at least. But she's won a hardcore tournament in Prague since then. She lost a tight match to Ash Barty at Wimbledon on grass. And she beat Garbini and Muguruza last week in Cincinnati as well. So she actually has really nice hardcore data as well. So uh, over over the last six months on hardcore, she's running over that 110 combined service and return points, one percentage, which makes her a really dangerous player coming into this tournament. So uh, I actually think that she's better value and has a greater chance of winning than some of the players who are shorter than her in the outright market right now. Interesting. Interesting. Look, there we go. That's both sides of the draws done. I want any of the thoughts, any of the business for you before we do wrap up. Mm. Um, heading into it, um, Dan, have you got other stuff that you, you kind of want to slip into the podcast, help the betters out a little bit? Yeah. So I think in one of the sort of the notes you sent over earlier, we saw, we spoke about what's achievable for Emma Raducanu was one of the questions mm. on the on the script and. That's a, that's a really interesting debate because obviously she she had a had a breakthrough tournament in Wimbledon. Uh, she's in qualies tonight, second round against Marion Botfadza, the Georgian player, and she played well uh, recently in a, the tournament. She lost to Clara Towson in in the final. Now that neatly brings me on to Towson, who I think is one of the highest potential players on the WTA WTA tour right now. Constantly, we're finding these young players breaking through to, to major tournaments, showing no fear, showing the huge upside. And I think that Clara Towson is certainly a player to watch. I'm really interested to see her progress as well in, in, in the coming tournaments and coming months and the next year as well. Radicanu, I think, first of all, she's got to get into the main draw. I think she should be, should be well, well placed to do so. What's achievable for her? What's success for her? I think success would be making round three would be a great result for her. If she was to get to the week two, wow, that's incredible. There we go. Some good, some good insights. It's worth people sticking around and listening to this podcast. Of course it is. It always is. Always is. Um, Matt, so I just want to pick your brains then. So actually, as soon as we finish recording this podcast, you're to flush your medals. Yeah. So, uh, so, so I want to just, just see um, how much you're looking forward to it. It's such a good feeling. You've obviously got lots of history with the event, lots of affiliation with New York. Are you looking forward to it? Oh, I'm look. I'm dying to go. I mean, I was on site at Wimbledon, uh, so that was absolutely brilliant. But I did the, uh, uh, the with the see the four majors prior to that. So the Australian Open, the French Open, uh, and then the French Open last year in in uh, September, the US Open, all from a studio, uh, and I wasn't on site. So to get to Wimbledon and to actually 
talk to these these players because uh, I actually interview them um, and uh, and I get a lot out of them I feel because I'm a former player so they're oh Matt how's it going and then I sort of throw in something even before the cameras are on about maybe a, a certain point in the match or the backhand whatever and uh, so I get a really good feel once I get go there to see them but I, I, I want to stress that we are still in COVID times uh, and it's not, I, I am supposed to go there. I'm supposed to have a media day with the players where you can talk, interview them and, and you get sort of Novak Djokovic, you get the best players in the world and you get five minutes with them. And it's kind of like that mixed mix zone at the Olympics where you just, they go from, from, we don't have that. I'm not going to do that. So there's not going to be any. So, so COVID is still uh, very much part of uh, part of the player's psyche. Um, I believe that there is a capacity crowd so far. So that, that's a great thing. But the players have to be very careful. And, and again, it's not easy for these players uh, to stay motivated. They have learned how to deal with it, but it's still very tough. Um, going back just very quickly to the young players, because we talked about Emma Raducano. We should talk about Yannick Sinner, a uh, great Italian yes. young player who's most probably the hottest uh, of all the young players. He, he hasn't even turned 20 years old yet. And Coco Goff. To me, Coco Goff is the reason why we are seeing players like Emma Raducano, maybe even Yannick Sinner, because for a long time, guys, they've been saying, oh, tennis is so physical these days that you can't be 17 years old winning a major like Mats Philander, Boris Becker, Michael Chang, Martina Hingis. And now I'm looking at these girls. And Coco Goff is the one that started it a couple of years ago. Wimbledon. Yeah. No, it isn't. It's not more physical. If anything, it's up here in the mind. And these younger players are more mature today than they were, let's say, um, eight or nine years ago uh, when the Kei Nishikori or Milos Raonic. And these guys really needed some time. Uh, and also the last thing is Federer and Nadal are not in it. So there's a lot of players like Marin Cilic, Kane Shikori, they don't have a player in the field except Novak where they have a record of 118 or maybe haven't even beaten Roger Federer. So I think a lot of players are saying, finally, thank God, Roger and Rafa are out or Serena and Venus on the women's side. And I think that just opens up uh, some of these players that like a Marin Cilic who's won the US Open, um, he, he will say, well, I have to beat Novak. That's it. Don't have to worry about the other two nightmares. So I think the mindset of players is completely different in these times because Roger and Rafa are not there. Whether you think they had a chance to win the tournament or not, they certainly take uh, uh, something out of you. So, yes, if Novak doesn't win this tournament, this is what's interesting. Or can he sleep at night? I mean, this is a chance of a lifetime and he can actually properly say, I'm the greatest player of all time. Now, if he doesn't, being as big a favorite as Pinnacle has him, if he doesn't win it, then we're going to go, oh my God, he couldn't do it. And then if he wins his 21st next year or the year after, that's different. Then we're going to mix yeah. them all together again. The calendar Grand Slam while winning his 21st is absolutely a huge, huge milestone uh, for the game, for me, and of course for Novak Djokovic. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm extremely excited. I don't understand why they don't let former champions into the tournament like they do at the Masters in golf. <laughs> or at the so, I mean, we should get an exemption for 25 years. I'm you ready. Love it. You should have a champion's dinner, Matt. Yes. You bring some right life to that as well, I tell you. It'd be brilliant. 
<laughs> Guys, thanks so much as always. Uh, that's uh, Dan Weston and Max Villander here with us on the Pinnacle Advantage Betters podcast. Um, Dan Weston on Twitter is at Tennis Ratings. Max Villander official on Instagram. And remember to head to pinnacle.com uh, for all the odds as they change, especially when that draw is made. That's very key. Dan always points that out here on the podcast. And keep an eye on all our coverage of the US Open on our betting resources with previews from, from both Max and Dan, actually. Plenty of updates on at Pinnacle on Twitter and Pinnacle.betting on Instagram. Remember to gamble responsibly and uh, enjoy the tennis.